Welcome to the Insight Insight podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing school shooters. Although the mental health professionals on this podcast are affiliated with various institutions, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those institutions. This podcast is for learning purposes only and is not to be taken for medical advice. Your personal doctor is the best person to discuss those issues with. Hello, I'm Dr. Gritty. I'm a psychiatry resident at University Hospitals in Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Resnick, who is a forensic psychiatrist who also works at University Hospitals. We oh, interviewed you last season. Right. Glad to be back. Yeah, thank you. We're really glad to have you. There were um, people requesting to ask you more questions, so that's why we're, today we're discussing school shootings. Can you sort of start by telling us what were some of your experiences working with school shooters? Sure. As a forensic psychiatrist, I get consulted when someone is a potential school shooter and they need to be evaluated. And then after the fact, I evaluate people who have done school shootings. So in the Cleveland area, in Chardon, I evaluated a school shooter for insanity and he killed two and wounded three uh, seriously. And then I also have an involvement in the Cruz case in the Parkland, Florida case. What are the characteristics of school shooters in general? Well, uh, most are students enrolled in the school where they do the shooting. All are boys rather than girls that do school shootings. And uh, they more often the purpose, the intent, is to go after faculty than to go after other students. And often there is some grievance where they feel they've been treated unfairly, and they may feel they have nothing to lose. In other words, they have suicidal thoughts, and they want to go out in a dramatic way. So it's suicide by cop? Well, suicide by cop is actually a serious problem. 15% of all police who die on duty die in a suicide by cop situation. That more often happens in a, like a standoff or someone is shooting from their home. The purpose of a school shooter is to get some kind of revenge against people they feel have wronged him and they are willing to die rather than the goal being to die. The goal is to kill and a willingness to die. Did the students think out these attacks beforehand, or are they pretty impulsive? They are not impulsive. You know, the newspapers like to use the phrase, uh, Joe snapped. But uh, the length of planning ranges from two days to three or four years, where people are very, very thoughtful they acquire weapons, they may uh, shoot their weapons to become more proficient at ranges, and are uh, very, very thoughtful about how they will carry it out. And of course, the Columbine shooting, um, which is now the 20th anniversary in this past April, uh, that's an example of, again, months of planning. And uh, school shooters around the world 
are interested in the Columbine shooting. It, people are actually go there, they study it online, and there's actually some discussion now of knocking down the Columbine school uh, and building a memorial because school shooters from around the world uh, actually come and view it as almost like a, a holy monument. Is there any way for us to predict these attacks and intervene? It is very difficult to predict because some of the characteristics which are seen, uh, in other words, there would be several hundred students with characteristics to identify which one will be a school shooter. So if you wanted to try and do preventive work, you would have to put hundreds of thousands of students uh, in some kind of protective setting. So practically speaking, we have to look for overt clues, not just kids who are angry or upset, because so many adolescents uh, are going through that. What should we look for when we're assessing whether someone is a threat or not? Well, it's primarily someone would be referred by a school or uh, a psychiatrist or mental health professional may be, may be talking with a student and they may say, I'm so angry at my teacher, Mrs. Jones, I have thoughts of killing her or shooting up the school. So when it's that overt, that of course changes the picture entirely and then a full investigation needs to be done. And that kind of investigation would include not only what the student is saying, but looking for their cyberspace uh, footprint. So if a student is willing to hand over the phone, their smartphone and their computer, that's fine. But if the student is resistant to that, then actually involving the police to get a search warrant to get hold of that material is uh, critical. So you kind of alluded to that these people feel they've been wronged in some way. They feel like things are hard and they're obviously not having a good time. They're suicidal and homicidal. So it sounds like these people need help, but how can we help them? All right. Again, because we are doing uh, prevention, they may not have committed a crime, which means you don't have the extra tools of like someone being on probation where you can mandate treatment, you can mandate medication, you can mandate drug tests. Now the school, if there has been a threat, does have certain powers. Uh, they could expel someone, but that just pushes it to the next school. And in fact, if someone brings a gun to school, federal law mandates that uh, that child uh, is expelled and law enforcement be notified. But what we can do is an integrative, helpful approach. So it might be as simple as moving someone out of a class where they're being bullied by the students in that class. It may be moving them to a different class because the teacher is treating them unfairly in their perception. If someone is a very difficult case, you may work with the parents to file what's called an unruly petition with the juvenile court so that that gives extra then power for the court to mandate treatment and very close monitoring. So there are, uh, we can of course obviously get someone into treatment, 
supportive and, and close monitoring. And if someone is being bullied, and bullying is not uniform, but about 75% of school shooters have been uh, bullied. So it is important there to intervene and help reduce the bullying. I already asked how we can predict attacks. Is there any way we can go about preventing them? Well, prevention, again, there is a expression very popular now in the literature called see something, say something. And so this involves the school administration changing the attitudes and tone of students so that rather than being viewed as a snitch because they reveal Joey has a gun in his locker, that the person be viewed in a positive way for presenting a school shooting. And so this takes some work by the administration and teachers setting a different tone. And Florida right now is developing an app so all teachers and students can anonymously give a tip to the school administration to check out something. And they can either leave their name or not leave their name for those who are worried about being labeled a snitch. Another intervention I saw at Parkland is shortly after they did clear backpacks. Um, I was wondering what you think of other school interventions that can be done and how helpful they can be. Well, there's two broad ways we can think of preventing school shootings. One is being more attuned to students so they don't do the shooting. And the other is to alter certain physical things. And for example, new schools that are being built now are being built with security in mind. And bulletproof glass is being put in windows in the doors. Uh, and the windows are small enough so that students can actually all go to one end of the classroom and not be within the view. Locks are being put on school doors that are from the inside where the student, where the teacher can lock the students in the room. And, uh, and then various ways of having a school resource police officer present. And there's an effort in Florida to get these at all schools. Uh, and then a magnetometer to reduce the ability to bring in a gun. And actually, Parkland did a uh, not allowing of backpacks for a while. Students felt very put upon that they were having their personal belongings either inspected or not allowed in, and that did not continue for a long time, but was meant to be reassuring when the Parkland schools went back to school. So that's school interventions. What interventions are states looking into, or should they look into? Well, Florida, interestingly, uh, after the Newtown shooting, there were substantial changes in Connecticut, and it became a red flag state. That is, uh, the police can be notified that someone is a danger of homicide and suicide. They can go into the home and take away the gun uh, with, with, and then a student or a adult can seek to get the gun back. They have to go to court. But in other words, you can remove the gun without a hearing and you have to have a hearing to get it back. Florida did that after Parkland. 
And in uh, Virginia, after Virginia Tech at the college school shooting, again, the legislature passed $400 million of additional resources for mental health treatment. The, also, uh, many millions was made available in Florida after the school shooting. So the Parkland students actually had a very, very strong effect. And uh, even though they weren't successful in getting Congress to do much, the U.S. Congress, they did get a lot done on the state level. And then they traveled around the country and a number of states, 18 states now have these red flag laws where it is easier to remove guns. One discouraging thing is that in cases where a, uh, it's a little incidental, uh, one study showed that if an adolescent was suicidal and a psychiatrist said to the parents, I want you to remove guns from the home because your son is suicidal, and if there's an adolescent male in the home, they're 10 times more likely to die by suicide if there's a gun in the home. Only one-third of parents removed the guns. Now, that related to suicide, that study, but it also suggests the same implications would be there uh, when we try and discourage people from having guns in the home because uh, more than 80% of school shooters did obtain their gun from home. And parents may think the gun is locked up and inaccessible, but students see where parents put the key or they simply use a crowbar and break in to take a gun. They're not worried about parental discipline if they expect to shoot and kill people and then be killed themselves. And that goes into my next question. That's one way students can obtain weapons. Are there other ways that, that students get weapons? It's mainly from the home because minors under 18 cannot uh, go in and buy a gun legally. And of course, Florida also raised the age from 18 to 21. And uh, the weapons used uh, in national studies show that about half are handguns and half are rifles. So again, in areas where hunting is common and people have rifles in the home. Uh, and then of course, the the actual weapons like at Parkland, an AR-15, which can uh, shoot very rapidly, creates the highest uh, body count. Is there anything that you think the public gets wrong about school shooters? There are some uh, articles in the uh, newspapers which suggest that school shooters are mentally ill, almost expecting that goes together. But in reality, only 27% uh, have a diagnosis of psychosis, and 28% have no psychiatric diagnosis at all. Others may have personality disorders, but are not mentally ill in the sense of being seriously ill, where they're out of touch with reality. Based on your experiences, is there anything else that you think is important to say about this topic? One other phenomenon that comes up is parental denial, so that a student who makes some kind of threat and then either law enforcement or mental health professionals see the parents and tell the parents, uh, the parents often say, my son is so gentle, he could never be a school shooter and don't even want to cooperate and turning over computers. 
and just reject the possibility. That is very common. And uh, in the Columbine shooting, again, uh, the parents of uh, Klebold had they they had a little clue that he was going through some depression, but thought that that was just adolescent angst, and had no idea that uh, he was writing a diary about how he was suicidally uh, depressed. So parents, uh, one has to either break through that denial or else use the power, police power, to uh, force a, an evaluation when parents don't cooperate. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship with autism in school shootings? Well, one has to be careful, obviously, because almost all autistic kids don't become school shooters. However, there is uh, two examples of autistic school shooters were the Newtown, Connecticut shooter and the Parkland shooter, uh, Mr. Cruz, had clear-cut evidence of autism. But one thing that's striking is that in both cases, uh, the mothers were involved in helping to arrange firearms for their kids and uh, thought that they would handle them uh, responsibly. But there is some evidence because of actual alteration in empathic capacities, some uh, potential defect in the capacity to fully understand moral reasoning, that there is some increased risk with autism compared to those without. Dr. Resnick, what is the difference between making a threat and posing a threat? Well, when someone makes a threat, that's fairly straightforward. But it's very possible, in fact, most school shooters can be identified as posing a threat, but never make a threat. For example, a study was done by the Secret Service of people who attempted to and did assassinate a United States president. And it turns out that none of them notified the president in advance of their attentions. But 10,000 people every year threatened the president and most never approached the president. So, so people who pose a threat are not the same ones who make a threat. So now applying that to school shooting, majority of school shooters never make an explicit threat, but that doesn't mean they don't pose a threat. So a remark of something like, I am just so angry at this school, I just uh, don't care what happens. You know, even though they don't explicitly say they're going to have a shooting, any kind of remark uh, or seeing someone else's laptop where they are focusing on weapons of mass destruction is worth saying something, even though they aren't making an explicit threat. So it sounds like the people who say they're going to shoot someone don't usually do that. No, 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 no. Uh, you can't say that people who make a threat are not a threat uh, okay. when it comes to school shooting. They should be investigated fully. My point is that although presidential assassins, most who threaten, do not do it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to school shooters, those who threaten absolutely require a very thorough investigation. But in addition to that, 
those who don't threaten but are quietly acquiring weapons or being isolated or focusing on inner rage and becoming more irritable, those need to be evaluated also, not just those who threaten. How is law enforcement changing to respond to school shootings? At the time of Columbine, standard police procedure was to surround the school so the shooter could not get out and not go in. It turns out in Columbine, the school shooters, while the police were outside, killed many more students. So police tactics have changed now. And the first person on the scene, even though they're alone, is instructed to go in and confront the school shooter, even though if they're armed with only a handgun. And of course, in Parkland, Florida, the one school resource officer did wait till others came and has been severely criticized and even criminally charged because of that conduct. And what's the average response time for police? To responding to a school shooting? The average response time is five minutes, but school shootings are usually over within three minutes, which means that most of the time, by the time police arrive, the shooting is over. And, the, and sometimes as the police are approaching, the individual will shoot themselves in the head. Sometimes they'll have a shootout with the police, but the actual shooting of students is usually over by the time the police arrive. So even though efforts are being made to reduce the body count, to make it harder by having uh, doors and windows and locks, and the police are being trained, and now, just like when I was a student, we had fire drills, now uniformly schools are having active shooter drills. Mm -hmm. Those efforts may reduce the body count, but they will not prevent the number of school shootings. So as a forensic psychiatrist, you deal with these very extreme, terrifying, traumatic situations and analyzing them and analyzing these people who commit these horrible acts that most of us could never imagine. How do you cope with that? Well, first of all, let me just comment on the horror of a school shooting. There is no single loss greater than parents losing a child. And in fact, when a child loses parents, we have a name for that, they're orphans. When a woman loses her husband, they are widows. And when parents lose children, there is no word for it. Because in a sense, it's an unspeakable uh, situation. So it is a, a great uh, tragedy and talking with people who have lost children or perpetrated these crimes indeed does take an emotional toll. And there is an aphorism uh, from uh, Frederick Nietzsche, those who fight monsters should not become monsters in the course of it. And uh, I am sure that I have uh, become somewhat more insensitive in this work. And when I take a psychiatry resident with me to see a case and they're sitting for the first time with a rapist or a murderer, I'm aware that they're reacting to it, but it's my 400th murderer and I'm not. So there's no question one does develop 
a thicker emotional skin to deal with it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Resnick, and sharing your knowledge. It's, it's Thank you for what you do and for all the education that you give to, to people so they continue your work. Thank you. So thank you for listening to the Insight in Psych podcast. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email us at insightinsych at gmail.com. Please consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. A special thank you to Dr. Resnick for speaking with us today to help all of us gain more insight into psychiatry. Mm-hmm.